Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Not everybody, but almost everybody can add at least one tree to their yard. Some people can add a whole bunch of trees. When you got five acres of lawn and nothing else, you can get a lot of trees in there. <clears throat> and when you add a tree, you remove part of the lawn. The next thing you do is put a bed around that tree. That removes even more lawn. Uh, and before lawn, what you have is a, is a matrix. And then you can put some shrubs under that tree. You're creating this, this little microcosm in, in your yard. Uh, and the lawn kind of weaves its way through there. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 136, Creating a Homegrown National Park. This week, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Doug Tallamy. Doug is an entomologist, he's a professor at the University of Delaware, and he's an author. You can find his works with such books as Bringing Nature Home, Nature's Best Hope, and The Nature of Oaks, as well as all the multitude of courses he's taught over his 41 academic year career. During our conversation, you're going to hear Doug fill us in on the grassroots movement of Homegrown National Park, why biodiversity is important to humans, and what the average person can do to prevent biodiversity loss. He's also going to share the importance on what he calls keystone native species, why private landowners are a key cog in the biodiversity wheel, and the importance of getting yourself on the map. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Uh, as you heard in the intro, uh, we have Dr. Doug Tallamy joining today. Uh, Doug, how are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Uh, anytime I get to talk about conservation, which you know is the whole basis of this podcast, I'm in a good mood. So I'm in a good mood today. And uh, I'm interested to share with the listeners and also learn for myself uh, what this sort of new initiative of Homegrown National Park is. So um, could you just sort of give everyone a little bit of a prep uh, into like what is Homegrown National Park? Okay. Well, you know, the, the planet has two major environmental issues. We've got climate change, but we also have a biodiversity crisis. And even if we had no climate change, we would have a biodiversity crisis because we have not shared the earth and its resources with other species. That's a big problem, not just for those species, but for us as well, because we depend on them. Those are the species that run the ecosystems that we depend on. So this biodiversity crisis is something we need to address. Uh, and it was a number of years ago, I, I got the idea of uh, taking the amount of lawn that we have in this country, which is about 44 million acres at this point, an area bigger than New England, um, dedicated to an ecological deadscape, taking that and just cut that area in half. So I'm not saying getting rid of lawn, I just say cut the area in half and then use the plants that are best at supporting biodiversity instead of that lawn. 
Uh, and removing any of the plants that are invasive, that escape our properties and, and invade our natural areas. <clears throat> if we do those three things, uh, we can really, really take a, a bite out of this biodiversity crisis. So that's what Homegrown National Park is all about. We would be, everybody be creating a little national park right where they live, right where they, right at home. And of course, we've expanded it since then. It's bigger than just shrinking your lawn. It's protecting any of the woodlots that are on your property. Um, there's a role for farmers. There's a role for, for corporate landscapes. For just about everybody in terms of, of you know, putting the world back together again with the plants that create the ecosystems that we all depend on. So the main goal of Homegrown National Park is to get that message to the non-choir, the people who don't already know this, there's a number of people that know this, but there's a lot more that don't. They think that that you know humans and nature are totally separate from each other. That it's nice, but we don't need it. Those are the those are the educational goals of Homegrown National Park is to you know get that message out there. We do need it. It's not optional, and it's everybody's responsibility. Yeah, I mean, can you ex expand upon that a little bit? I mean, why is biodiversity so important? Like, what role? Let me sort of change this a little bit. You know, I'm a culinary teacher. I talk about our food system here in the United States. Um, you know, anyone can just walk or drive down the, down the road to their local grocery store, buy whatever food they want, and they get to eat. How does biodiversity play a part in that? Like, why is it important that we maintain biodiversity when you look at a, a field producing corn or soybeans or an apple orchard, and that's all you see? You think that's food. How is that actually a negative? Uh, well, I'm not saying it's a negative, uh, although agriculture, some form of agriculture takes one half of the, the planet's terrestrial earth surface at this point. Uh, and, by, and agriculture, we need it. We've got to eat, that's for sure. But it is not supporting the biodiversity that runs the ecosystems that we depend on. So what do I mean by that? You know, it's ecosystem services that provide our life support. They produce the oxygen. They, they support the pollinators that allow 90% of our flowering plants to reproduce. If we lost our pollinators, we'd lose 90% of the flowering plants on the planet. Not an option. They moderate our weather systems. They, they sequester carbon dioxide, uh, you know, which is, that's a direct climate change issue. They manage our watersheds. They do all these things that goes far beyond going to the store and buying your food. Um, so that's what that's what uh, healthy ecosystems do. And every time we lose a species from an ecosystem, it performs those jobs more poorly. So that's why we want all the species. It's not, you know, this one's more important than that one. They all are important. You've got the you've got the predators keeping the herbivores in check and the herbivores keeping the plants in check and the plants making the food that supports everything. We need all of that happening not just in our parks and our preserves, but everywhere because we need healthy ecosystems everywhere. Yeah, so, so that leads me right into the next question I have. Like we have, uh, especially in the United States, a, a great system of national parks, state parks, um, national forest areas. Uh, like we have millions upon millions of acres of what we consider public land um, that have to a varying degree stable biodiversity. Why is it important for landowners, you know, private landowners to get involved in this? You mentioned lawns, but like what, what else is there? 
Well, I'm going to challenge that that statement that we have stable biodiversity because it's not stable. We're in the sixth great extinction event right now. We've lost 3 billion breeding birds in the last 50 years. We've got global insect decline. Um, species are disappearing all over the place, even though we've got these protected areas. The big problem with the protected areas is they're not big enough and they're not connected. We are, you know, out of the, the formal uh, preserved park systems in the U.S., it's 12% of the country. That leaves 88% uh, that is, is vulnerable. We do have national forests, but they're there for multiple multi-use. I mean, they're logged, they're mined, <laughs> they're grazed. You go to our, our, our wilderness areas in the, in the West, there's a cow on every single acre. Um, so, so yes, it's certainly better than nothing, but it's not good enough. We've got 135 million acres of residential landscapes out there. So it's a big chunk of land. We've got 410 million acres of, of cropland. We've got 770 million acres of rangeland, tremendous amounts of, of acreage that can still be functional. But if we focus on, on the, the uh, powerhouse plants, I call them keystone plants, we could support a whole lot more biodiversity than we're doing right now. So, I mean, what... What is it about those keystone native plants that are really like the building blocks of biodiversity and what we're trying to do? Well, one of the main functions of, of plants, of course, is to capture the energy from the sun and through photosynthesis, turn it into food. You create simple sugars and carbohydrates, and that is the food that keeps just about all the animals on the planet alive. Only if that food moves from the plant to the animal. If it stays in the plant, then you don't have any animals. And this is where native plants are so good because um, the animals in a particular area are adapted to eating the plants, to getting that energy from the plants in that area. When we take plants from another area, so you know, in this country, we get an awful lot of plants from Asia. In the South, we have them from South America, in the far West from the Mediterranean area. Those plants have not co-evolved with the animals that live here which means uh, our animals are very poor at, are very, they're not very able to access the energy that are in those plants. Now, a key connection here is insects. Most vertebrates do not eat plants directly. Most vertebrates eat invertebrates that ate those plants. Just think of birds, for example. We get birds, they eat a few berries, a few seeds, but 96% of our terrestrial birds rear their young on insects that got their energy from plants. And I'm not talking about a few insects, I'm talking about many thousands for each nest that's out there. So if you take that relationship away and when you bring in a plant from, from Asia like ginkgo or, or autumn olive or porcelain berry or all the things that are, that are invasive around here, very few insects can eat them. So there's not enough insects for the birds to reproduce and that food web uh, that supports the animals, call it in higher trophic levels, that's broken. And the energy stays in the plant and then, then we have these big declines that we're we're measuring. So, the United States is a, a huge landmass. Um, you know, we're a country that is huge. There's going to be regional differences in those native plants. So, what would be your suggestion? You know, for someone wherever they live to find out what the native plantings are because. What's native here in Pennsylvania, where I am, is going to be different in Michigan or Florida or Arizona. Um, you know, so we can't plant the same things and consider them native. So 
what's that what's that way of going about trying to figure out what is native for your area well uh, you're exactly right and that's why we've created a tool which is now on the uh, national wildlife federation website called native plant finder you put in your zip code and the best plant genera for both woody plants and herbaceous plants for your county wherever you live pop up and i'll also uh, make a shout out for a, a tool called calscape in california California has so many different ecoregions in such short amounts of area that um, they developed this tool. Every single native plant is geo-referenced and you can look at the map, you know exactly where you live and you can see what plants are appropriate for where you live. So the the, the mystery of what to plant uh, isn't a mystery anymore. It's all right there. Yeah, I mean, is it, is there like a one-stop shop as far as deciding what to plant i mean you mentioned you know woody and herbaceous like it should can you just blanketly say like we need to plant trees or yeah. we need to plant native grasses or is it more complex than that and then the second part of that question is like if it is complex how do people come to that decision yeah well it is a little bit more complex than that because it depends on the eco region that you are in um, so for most areas of the country, yes, trees are important, but as you said, they're not the same trees in the Rocky Mountains as they are in, in Pennsylvania. Um, plant recommending trees for the, the high plains uh, short grass prairie in Colorado is inappropriate unless you're along a, a riparian cart or along a stream. Um, so it's, it is a little bit more complex. Um, and this is why, you know, the, most people do not garden themselves. They do not create their own landscape. They hire somebody. So I am trying to promote um, the creation of a, a, uh, a new career for an awful lot of people called ecological landscaping or ecological gardening, where most of the people who, who have, you know, who own land can just hire somebody and say, okay, you put the plants in that need to be done. They'll know how to do it. They'll know how to design it in an attractive way. They'll know how to install them. They'll know how to maintain them. Uh, and it'd be just like you hiring your lawn service, the mow, blow and go guys that, that we do all the time, except it will be done in an ecologically proper way. Now, there are a lot of resources out there for people that want to do it themselves. Um, you know, Google's Google's great. I've written three books. A lot of people have written books on on uh, how to go about this. But you do have to know some things. So it's <laughs> it's like anything else. But you know what? I somebody told me years ago. Oh, this is way too complicated. We'll never be able to do it. And then I looked at my iPhone and I said, "Are you kidding? We've learned how to use iPhones, and they're much more complicated than anything I'm talking about. So I don't believe that we can't learn this." Yeah, I, I want to go back to a. A little bit of a previous statement. You mentioned, you know, how much of our land around the world is being used for farmland now. Um, we have been farming, have had some sort of agriculture for thousands of years as people. Um, is it just as simple? Is it so simple to just say we're farming too much land now, or is it the way that we're farming now compared to 50, 100, 1,000 years ago? Now we actually farm more efficiently now than than we used to, um, but we've got eight billion people to feed now, and that is the big difference. We don't have one million or you know hundreds of thousands. We've got billions of people. We have people living in areas that don't support farming, so we've got to move food around. 
Uh, if you if you ask uh, you know just about any ecologist how many people the Earth can support sustainably, and sustainably means where you're not degrading all the ecosystems around you and forcing everything else to extinction. Um, the you know the consensus is that we're somewhere around three times over the carrying capacity of the planet. Well, you don't stay over the carrying capacity for very long. So we've got to we've got to control human population growth. And you know I know people don't want to hear that. It's just a fact of life. No population grows forever because the Earth is not not growing. The resources are not growing. Um, we got to be very careful uh, at this stage of our our. Uh, you know, our existence on, on planet Earth. So that's the big difference. It's the number of mouths we've got to feed uh, that separates us from the way it was. Even, you know, when I was, sorry, the Earth, the population in the U.S. has tripled since I was born. And I'm old, but not that old. So it shows how fast things have, have uh, um, you know, changed. And it's still still growing, so... So, I mean, a lot of people now um, are switching to not switching, but altering the way that they're farming. Th those that are farm farming, um, trying to go while still being efficient, try to sort of go back a little bit and do what um, I would I have called uh, sort of dirty farming, you know, allow having cover crops, um, allowing some uh, quote unquote weeds to grow, which there's really nothing that's actually a weed. It's just a plant that you don't want to grow, right? Uh, instead of having that monoculture, I mean, is that something that could be considered a sustainable farming practice? Yes. Um, but there's also going against that, we've got the new farming ethic is to get rid of all the weeds on the side of your fields, right up to the roadside. I mean, drive around the Midwest, drive around Pennsylvania, it doesn't matter where you are. The side of the of the cornfield or the soybean field now is is lawn. It used to be milkweeds and asters and goldenrods and all the things that supported our native bees and the migrating monarchs. And then we invented uh, Roundup Ready corn and soybeans, and we spray right up to the road and replaced it with lawn. Now we've got to mow that lawn, and we've taken away you know just tremendous amount of habitat that supported all of those insects. Then then supported all kinds of birds and. So from that simple uh, change right there, farming lost an awful lot of its its uh, sustainability. We also have the ability where we're fooling around with um, what we call prairie strips, where you uh, take a little bit of the land out of production, you put a, a strip of pollinator producing plants right through the corn, right through the soybeans, uh, and, and you do it at... Um, at an angle that will intercept water flow off your, your field. So it cuts down on soil erosion, cuts down on, on the, um, the uh, you know, uh, when you put on fertilizer, half of it washes off as soon as it rains, it, it grabs all of that. And it provides all of this uh, wonderful habitat for, for pollinators. Uh, and the land that you give up for that, it's compensated through, you know, uh, USDA CRP programs. So that's another wonderful addition that that even the mega farms that aren't really allowing those weeds to to flourish in there can can participate in. So we're moving in the right direction, but we have to make sure that keeps going. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, I've been uh, a couple of years ago, my father and I took a trip out to North Dakota to do some pheasant hunting and talking with a lot of people out there as we were trying to figure out, you know, where we could 
you know, you see some birds and you're like, hey, I wonder if we can gain permission to hunt on that property. And uh, talking to some of those farmers and, and some of the workers, uh, it seemed like this idea of like sort of precision agriculture was starting to take hold where, you know, you figure out what areas of your field don't produce to the point where you're really making any profit. So don't plant there, plant, you know, enroll that portion into CRP and plant you know, native habitat. And the idea is to actually, you know, they're trying to get the soil back to proper quality. And then when mm -hmm. they do, they can plant it again. But in the meantime, you know, a different part of the field has now had soil degradation to the point where it's not profitable. So, I mean, I get that, you know, these farmers need to make money, right? Like people need to earn a living. Um, but it seemed like there's a, a switch or a slow burn towards this idea of being a little bit more sustainable, a little bit better with, um, you know, producing food yet doing it in a way that is going to make money, but also help, you know, their plot of land and, and the animals that may use it. Make money over a longer period of time. So, uh, you know, that that's particularly too with grazing. You reduce the number of head on your your farm, but you can, you don't exhaust the the rangeland. You can do that forever, as opposed to you know overgrazing and then everything collapses. They're starting to figure that out, so um, that is definitely the way to go. Yeah, it's a lot of return on investment type stuff. You know, I can have more cattle on my land, uh, but then if I have to purchase all kinds of hay and feed and everything for them, am I really mm -hmm. making that much more money? Is it really increasing my lifestyle? Um, you know, and a lot of people are starting to get that sort of quality over quantity mindset uh, when it comes to, to farming. Y you mentioned taking lawns out, <laughs> um, you know, and realizing that people aren't going to just totally get rid of their entire lawn. Um, you mentioned half. Like, what are some things that you, you know, the average homeowner could do to increase biodiversity without just, you know, basically feel like they're living in a house in the middle of a overgrown field. <laughs> um, <clears throat> in most places of the country, the easiest thing to do is plant a tree. Almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody can add at least one tree to their yard. Some people can add a whole bunch of trees and you got five acres of lawn and nothing else. You can get a lot of trees in there. <clears throat> and when you add a tree, you, you remove part of the lawn the next thing you do is put a bed around that tree. That removes even more lawn. Uh, and before lawn, what you have is a, is a matrix. Uh, and then you can put some shrubs under that tree. You're creating this, this little microcosm in, in your yard. Uh, and the lawn kind of weaves its way through there. Uh, I don't say get rid of lawn. I say reduce it because lawn, manicured lawn is a cue for care. Uh, it is very important and most residential neighborhoods that we fit in with the current culture and the current culture is keep it neat the you know the lawn is a status symbol well you don't want to get rid of that status symbol but i'm but you can reduce the area and still have it nice and neat but you're having more plants in there if you add an oak tree to your yard uh, across the country they support 900 over 950 species of caterpillars and that is what the birds are rearing their young on so that single tree that's one of those keystone species. It's supporting more, more life than any other uh, plant genus in the country. So just this is where plant choice is really important. You can, you can add a tree, but if you add a calorie pear, it's not gonna support uh, very much at all. And it's gonna escape from your yard and then fill your, your uh, natural area with calorie pears that aren't supporting much. 
<clears throat> so the, the easiest thing to do is is to add a tree. And uh, to make sure that we're clear for everyone, you know, when you mentioned planting a tree, planting the shrubs, um, putting a bed underneath, planting in that, that's all native, right? We're not going to Lowe's to buy, you know, that oriental uh, plant or anything. That's all native species, right? Sure. Let, let's let's talk about that. Remember, we've got this insect connection. The tree has to has to be eaten by some insects so that the things that that um, eat insects get the energy from the plant. They're not going to eat the plant directly. Uh, well, the insects are going to eat that tree are are native insects, and they can't eat it. Um, these are generalities, but they can't eat it when it's a tree from Asia. So, for example, ginkgo. Ginkgo by love. Everybody loves ginkgo. Nice fall color. Nothing eats it. Nothing. So you've got a migrating bird stopping in your yard, nothing to eat. That migrating bird has to, has to every time it stops during its migration, it has to add 35 to 50% of its body weight in insects, mostly caterpillars, particularly in the spring. And they do that. They don't fly around our cities. They don't fly around, uh, you know, human development. That's impossible. They go right through it and they need to eat along the way. Um, so the, the plants you pick, are really important. And this is where that, that keystone plant concept comes in. 14% of our native plants are making 90% of those caterpillars that, that drive that food web. So it's not just native versus non-native, it's the, the natives that are contributing the most versus all the other plants. So we got a lot of natives that aren't, aren't doing all that much either. So, um, so it's a little bit, again, a little bit more complicated than just native versus non-native. Um, there are no non-native plants that support a whole bunch. Um, there's some that support a little bit, but there's an awful lot that support none. Um, so, so you can start there and say, well, I really want to favor these really productive natives. Does that mean you can't have any non-natives? No, there is room for compromise. We did a study that showed that if 70% if of your woody plant biomass is native in your yard, you can have a sustainable food web. So you can have that ginkgo. You just don't want it to be the only plant in your yard. You can have the crepe myrtle. Uh, just think of them as statues, though. They're there, they're pretty, they're decorations, but they're not driving your food web. And you don't want only that stuff. Uh, when it comes to, to planting, let's say, that, and this is a very similar, uh, I'm pretty much telling my own situation here. Um, I have roughly a third of an acre uh, of yard around my house. Um, it's not a square. Uh, and there are trees lining all the way around my property. Like all my neighbors have oak trees, maple trees, um, some various pine trees as well, all around. Um, for me to plant a tree in my yard doesn't make sense. There's all these other trees. So what else could I do in that yard to provide some sort of biodiversity, you know, outside of just having this lawn and then my neighbor's trees? There's, there's four things that every neighborhood ought to be doing if we're going to reach a sustainable relationship with, with Mother Nature. One is to sequester carbon, so you need those trees. Another one is to manage the watershed. So we you know, lawns don't, lawns destroy the watershed, but, but any other plant does. Another one is to maintain that complex community of pollinators, not just honeybees, but all, you know, we've got 4,000 species of native bees. They've all got to be part of the picture. And the final one is to maintain that food web where you have the plants that are going to make the food and pass it on to animals. Can every single yard do all of those things? Probably not. Because, because as you say, if you've got the big trees, then you've blocked out the sun uh, and it, your yard that is surrounded by big trees 
would probably be a great place for, for pollinator garden. Focusing on the plants that support the specialist pollinators, the ones that can only reproduce on particular types of pollen. So plants like goldenrod and native asters and perennial sunflowers. If you have those three genera in your yard, you've got 44 species of, of specialist bees that won't be there if you don't have those plants. Um, so, you know, surrounded by trees, you've got the sun. You want to take advantage of that. All right. So I'm going to tell you what I've done <laughs> because I want to I want to get your take and and also see like it, what my next step should be. So these are the things that I I have done over the last uh, probably two years to try to increase biodiversity in my own yard. Uh, and part of it is because I hate cutting grass. I worked for five years on a golf course. The, the less grass I can cut, the better. Um, so the first thing I did was I actually overseeded my lawn with clover. Okay, um, because uh, the clover doesn't grow as high. Uh, and also when it does go to flower, that's providing some pollinator habitat was my justification. Uh, I then I increased the uh, mower deck to three and a half inches instead of three inches or two and a half inches to allow what was what's there, both grasses and um, the clover to get a little bit taller. And I also mow less frequently than my neighbors, sometimes to their chagrin so that it grows a little taller so that clover can go to flower. I've also taken roughly a third of my yard out of grass and planted some native pollinators, um, aster, milkweed are really the two main things that are in there. That's what I've done. How good of a job is that? And then what else could I do? Give me something else. Like what's the next step? Well, you've done, you've done a great job. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've turned just about every part of your yard into something that's productive. That clover is going to support those generalist bees. It's going to support um, bumblebees and, and honeybees. We still need the honeybee. Uh, your your uh, milkweeds uh, and asters are going to support monarchs really well. The monarchs during re reproduction when they're making more monarchs and then the, the asters during migration they're done with milkweeds when they're migrating, but they have to stop and get nectar all the way down to uh, Mexico. And right now we've got those fall blooming asters that are keeping those monarchs going. So, uh, and you know, so I'm, I'm still picturing your yard with those productive trees around it. I think you, you know, you've, you've done it, sit back and enjoy it. You know? <laughs> for, for... All right, here's, here's one thing you could, okay. maybe a water feature. Okay. With circulating water, it doesn't have to be big, uh, but that is, um, that's a really productive addition in terms of the local birds. They love clean water. So they, they're not going to use a bird bath where it just sits there and gets stagnant. They want it, they want it bubbling, circulating. Um, so that, you know, it sounds like you don't have that and you could add that and, and they would be happy. Okay. Yeah. That, that's something I don't know that I would have thought about, um, Okay, so that's a good step. Now, I, I want to say, I want to put a little bit of a clarifier out there. Um, I feel like as a society, we're used to going to Lowe's or whatever home improvement store, buying flowers that are already, bloom it, already bloomed. We plant them. It's pretty. We have shrubs that are manicured. Like We're used to sort of in, instant gratification uh, with our, our plant species that we plant around our house. When you plant native plantings, a lot of times, um, they don't look pretty 100% of the time. Uh, I will say that, you know, it 
the the third of my yard that I planted in the um, native pollinators the first year, they really did not look very good. Um, but just about a week ago, my wife looked out the kitchen window and said, oh, there's flowers out there. Uh, some of those, some of the native plantings are, some are early bloomers, some are late bloomers, and she was able to see those. So, you know, being able to, to sort of just roll with it and allow it time to come up, die in the winter, and then regenerate again. Uh, typically, they come back in, in better force the second and third year. Give it time. Just because it doesn't look pretty at the beginning, it's going to look, it, it will get better, I promise. Well, that's a that's a great point. But remember, this this will help you get through that period. You're planning function, not just decorations. So, so it's more than what it looks like. It's what it's doing. Uh, and right away, it's sequestering carbon, and you're 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 creating that food web that is is going to sustain. You know, you're building a yard that is contributing to your local ecosystem. Now, your neighbors probably have yards that are detracting from it. And when we do that over 135 million acres, we got a lot of detraction, and that's why we're you know lost 50, what three billion birds and all the other stuff. So, so feel good about the function that you've created, even if. It's not going to win the beauty contest. <laughs> uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe I remember receiving an email um, that Homegrown National Park has sort of partnered or been, is now a part of uh, 2% for conservation. Well, there's different there's different companies that have pledged to put 2% mm -hmm. or 1% of their, their profits towards conservation. Um, and we would love to get some of that percentage because... Because Homegrown National Park is free. There's no admission, you know, no, no, um, what do you call it? You don't have to pay to join. Um, and that's, that's an issue. You know, we're, a, we're a nonprofit and everybody's volunteering and that doesn't last forever. We need an income stream. So we'd love to, to tap into some of that 2% uh, from, from the big companies, but it hasn't happened yet. So <laughs> <laughs> You can say we're looking for it, but <laughs> yeah, we all are uh, in the conservation world. Um, okay, so how can people get involved? Like, how can people help with this homegrown national park idea? How can they um, other? You know, how can they sort of make it known that they are doing something on their own property that's trying to help with the biodiversity crisis? This is the big challenge. Uh, this is our big challenge. How do we get this message out to everybody who doesn't doesn't have a clue about it? Um, one thing a homeowner can do who's who's into it and says, "Okay, I'm I'm I am going to be part of the solution here," is to do it well. That that makes your yard an advertisement. Um, signage works. So the National Wildlife Federation years ago, you know, realized they put up these little certified habitat signs. People say, okay, I see what you're doing. Um, I get it. I understand it. It's not that, you know, you haven't just moved out and everything's going back to nature. Uh, so science can help, but um, it's, it's communication. Um, we have the ability through social media to, you know, we can get kids in East Timor to wear any kind of sneaker we want. And we can do it overnight if we want to. It's just a matter of getting that message to, to, to go viral. Um, I've got a couple of, of uh, documentaries in the, in the works, people wanting to, to uh, you know, start putting this on, onto video. 
Uh, and that's great because people watch, they don't read as, as much anymore. So that should help. But that you have nailed the challenge. That is the challenge. How do we get this message uh, out? Um, the, you know, the, the homeowners associations, the civic associations have these very rigid rules about what our neighborhood should look at, look like. It's starting to loosen up a little bit. People have challenged that, uh, for, for decades now. There was a lawsuit in, in Maryland, uh, and the homeowners association lost. So there's now a legal precedent to, uh, not forcing somebody to have a, an ecologically dead <laughs> landscape. And the, the headlines are helping. People are upset that we're losing the birds. They're upset that that we've we've got global insect decline. They're upset that the UN says we're going to lose a million species in the next 20 years. That's not an option. Those are the species that keep us alive. They want to be part of the solution. So it's kind of all coming together uh, in, in terms of, of what the average person is looking for. Fortunately, it has not been politicized. People seem to get it that everybody, red or blue or green or whatever you are, needs healthy ecosystems. And since we all need them, we all have a responsibility to, to keeping them healthy, to taking care of them. So I'm pleased with the direction it's, it's going. Um, but we do, I mean, that's what Homegrown National Parks is all about, trying to get that message to, to get out there. We have this, this map. I mean, you join Homegrown National Park and you, you register your property uh, and, and the amount of area that you're being a good steward of, and then it lights up. Um, and you're, you're, It'll be in your county. And we're working with a tech company to get it to light up all, all over the country so that we can see where the folk, where, you know, which counties are participating in conservation more than others, maybe make it a little bit competitive. Um, but but it, the object is to is to unite the entire country in this goal. Um, and and to the reason we don't charge to join Homegrown National Park is we don't want to exclude anybody who already belongs to an organization. We want all the National Wildlife Federation folks, we want all the Audubon folks, we want all the Sierra Club folks, all the Wild Ones folks. They're all doing the same thing. Let's get them together and we'll get it on the map and we can see just how well we're doing. That's our goal. Yeah. And I have taken in the website, I've taken in that map and the map's cool. I click through different states, different counties, just to sort of see what different areas look like. And then um, I signed up my yard because I've been doing this anyways. And I signed up our family property, which is in a different county in Pennsylvania. And, you know, answer a couple very simple questions. And all of a sudden, like you can see like, oh, that's another property in that county. I was disappointed to see the so few uh, properties listed, but I really have a feeling that that's not that that's not an indication of how many properties are actually actively working. I see it more as they just haven't been put on that map because they don't know the map existed. Um, so I encourage anyone. We're young. You know, we've only, the map's only been active for a year and a half at this point. Right. And you know, there are a lot of people doing this who just don't like technology. They don't want to fool around with websites and so there are those things. You're right. There are more people doing this than have recorded. But we do have 20,000 people that have joined Homegrown National Parks. So. Yeah, and that's what I've seen. So I want to encourage anyone that's listening. If you are doing good work on your property, put your name on the map, right? Like uh, there's no uh, award for who has the most property, you know, or anything like that. But, um, you know, the more we can, the more data we can collect on who's doing good work the easier it's going to be to be able to have sort of initiate and, and have that momentum going for even more change and get more people on board uh, to get, un, you know, unfortunately 
politics are still going to be a part of it, right? To be able to get politicians to um, put legislation out that's going to help with biodiversity issues in the future. You know, we need to have that collective uh, mindset, as you mentioned, with, you know, every group's doing good things. Let's get these groups together because there's power in people and the more people, the more power. Um, So can you just, uh, can you tell everyone the website, where can they find out more information about Homegrown National Park? homegrownnationalpark.org. It's all there. (laughs) So super easy uh, to find. And um, Doug, thanks for coming on talking about this. Um, I'm glad to be a part of it. And I'm going to be telling more people uh, that I can talk to you face to face about it. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Justin. Well, that'll do it for another episode here. I really appreciate you listening. And of course, a big thanks to this week's uh, guest, Doug. Uh, He was just a wealth of knowledge, wasn't he? (laughs) I mean, just it's awesome that someone who has that much knowledge also has the drive to start a movement, you know, create this this movement of, um, you know, that he's calling a homegrown national park. Like national parks are, you know, our national one of our national treasures. Uh, we can create our own little national park just in our own backyards, right? In the property that we own. And as he mentioned, there's so much of our land tied up in private land ownership that in order to really stem the issues that are caused by climate change and biodiversity loss, we need private landowners involved in that process. And talk about a great way to do this. If you haven't heard of Homegrown National Park, you need to check out their website in the episode notes. Take a look at the map that they have there. It's really cool to see what counties and what communities are taking such a, an active role in creating you know, this great native landscape. And if you want to support them or you want to push a you know, industry uh, or a company to support conservation, point them in the direction of the Homegrown National Park Organization. It's a great organization. They're doing good things, and more is going to be coming soon. So be ready to hear from Doug again, probably not in the too distant future. Until next week, get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.